This is the Walking Home from the ICU podcast. I'm Kelly Dayton, a nurse practitioner and ICU consultant. I help teams create awake and walking ICUs through evidence-based sedation and mobility practices. By hearing from survivors, clinicians, and researchers, we'll explore how to give ICU patients the best chance to walk out of the ICU and go home to survive and thrive. Welcome to the ICU Revolution. Okay, I've been so excited about content that I haven't really explored how to build an audience. Many of you have reached out with overwhelming support and wonderful ideas that I am trying to follow. So if you want to help bring this information to the ICU community, please leave a review on the podcast and subscribe to the YouTube channel. If you know of other ways to help make this accessible, let me know. Again, I've been way more about the content. We will also be having a more in-depth conversation or a brainstorming session on the Facebook group with teams that are trying to bring change and members of the Awake and Walking ICU. Please join in and collaborate with us. Now, let's talk about muscles, like really talk about them. My understanding has been limited to muscles being vital for movement and quality of life, but What role does muscular atrophy play into multi-organ failure? What are all the contributing factors that lead to lethal muscle loss during critical illness? This episode is the first of a few with Hiron Mollinger. I keep seeing in the literature that ICU-acquired weakness is an independent factor of mortality, but I didn't really understand why until I started chatting with Hiron. I have listened to his episodes a few times now. If this information is new for you too, you may have to replay these as well. Yarun, thank you so much for coming on the show. I have been eager to talk to you and pick your brain about a lot of things. Can you tell us about who you are and your background and what's led you to do all the wonderful research you've done? Right. Uh, my name is uh, Jeroen Modinger, uh, originally from the Netherlands. Right now, almost two and a half years here at Duke at the Department of Anesthesia and Duke Heart Geology. Uh, My background is mainly in the clinical medical exercise physiology. Um, The way I came about to become more interested in the ICU space was uh, I did a lot of uh, interesting stuff with elite athletes where we did a lot of assessments based on their cardiopulmonary metabolic phenotype. And I saw that it's kind of weird that we do so much cool stuff in athletes, but we don't do that very well in our. rehabilitation patients and mainly looking at mobilization of the ICU patient in the uh, uh, in the early phase. So I was thinking maybe we should treat our patients, what I kind of my, my slogan, let's treat our patients more like athletes. I think that would be better if we can also from a perioperative point of view, so before entering the ICU, if you have elective surgery, can you somehow optimize them to make sure that they're, if they have a stay in the ICU, making sure that it's the best they can have and the shortest they can have and also be the shortest on the um, on the ventilator and also during that stay you have to optimize them i think already from the admission day one so the the whole optimization part does not start upon discharge but optimization starts really upon admission of icu and i think that's that's the different kind of approach i'm having right here what's what i think you're familiar also in the us is that they're having right now it's kind of a, a kind of an ad hoc stuff that we're doing in the icu we see issues 
and we don't have any clue how these issues came about regarding um, kidney dysfunction, um, muscle wasting, uh, cardiac failure, all that other stuff. But mainly if you combine all this complication of possible adverse effects, it's all based on your mitochondrial function of the system right now. So also the mitochondrial function of the brain, looking at delirium, metabolic function or systemic metabolic function and uh, mitochondrial function of the kidney is all based on how can you be optimized? Because if one organ does not show very well function, it's already because it was already there. It's not a ad hoc thing that was there in the ICU. You're just showing it because you're already uh, prone to having issues. So coming from the Netherlands and uh, Paul Wismaier asked me to come over here at Duke and uh, we have a kind of a cool, I think, research group over here where we um, collect all kinds of data um, non-invasively using ultrasound. It's kind of a neat approach using, using muscle sound. So we're able to drive muscle metabolic phenotyping in a non-invasive way day by day. So we can looking at muscle size, but also looking at glycogen content, we can looking at muscle fat, muscle fat infiltration. So and that's really where I see my kind of a bridging the, the gap between the athletic world where we already doing that stuff, going to the more clinical space where we don't do that stuff. I kind of always kind of funny, but I think it's, it's a kind of a, give you kind of an insight. I think where we're still looking into the, the, the first days over here. And I think still also uh, that, that nutritionists and dietitians and physical therapists do meet each other was mainly when one say good morning, one entering the ICU room and one leaving. And I'm pretty sure everyone does the, the best they can in a job, but in an athletic world, that will never ever be the issue because you're already be talking to a dietitian with your performance coach and your physiologist to make sure that the nutritional intervention and your training and recovery is aligned and is, is periodized. And I think we do that we need to do that far more better in the ICU. We have to treat our patients like athletes, but also treat them as, as unique in the phenotype. So you have to tailor their specific needs on a day-by-day base and, and nutritional needs-wise and organization wise And there's a lot of stuff I think we need, we still need to, to talk and, and to see what we can do to. And also I think one of the cool stuff you're showing already is to be able to have early mobilization with the ventilator on. So can you even early mobilize with a being on the vent already? So that's a kind of a completely different kind of ball game. And if we can combine that specific early mobilization with other assessors we can do, for instance, using metabolic cards, using um, uh, muscle metabolic imaging with ultrasound. So we can then derive far better and larger data sets, which can help us tailor those specific needs from a patient. Which again, I think right now it's, everyone does their, I think their utmost, uh, also here in you know, COVID, but I think we need to be all more aligned. We need, need, to, need to talk. We don't have to be multidisciplinary, but we need to be interdisciplinary. And that's a different, different thing, yeah. Yeah, that's that's absolutely correct. And I am feeling a little bit silly because I structured the beginning of this podcast very specifically and I went through each discipline of the team and I had interviews with everyone but the nutritionists. Yeah. Which is ridiculous yeah. because uh, we always have nutritionists with us during rounds. And I don't think I really understood what role nutrition plays in critical illness. Right. Um, but I think that's because I don't think I really understood the role that muscle mass plays in critical illness. Um, I exactly. feel strongly about preserving it for quality of life, for like long-term outcomes, but you had posted something on Twitter that 
really got me interested and led me to you about um, the role muscle loss plays during critical illness. Right. And even, because I think we forget that muscles are just a vital part of the body. We're focused on perfusion, keeping yep. the kidneys, the liver and everything going perfused that we forget that muscles are essential for survival. So what all goes into muscle loss during the ICU? Because I talk a lot about deconditioning as far as not using the muscles, right. but you clued me into the other things that expedite the loss of muscles during critical illness. No, absolutely. I think the, the muscle itself is a very underestimated kind of an organ, organ system itself. People think that the muscle wasting or your, your loss of muscle is uh, uh, only hurtful because you cannot move anymore. But that is just one very small part of the whole story. Hmm. Because the muscle itself is one of your biggest metabolic organs. It is an organ that has profound interaction with other organ systems like the heart, the liver, the kidney, the gut. So the ability to, to talk is called inter-organ crosstalk. So there are specific... Uh, they're called myokines. There are some kind of cytokines. They're kind of, uh, uh, there's ability to excrete and secrete specific myokines from the muscle into the bloodstream, which then can make kind of a communication with the brain, with the liver, with the heart. Uh, uh, and that specific inter-organ crosstalk has to be there. If they cannot talk to each other anymore, then the whole, um, yeah, kind of, how do you define a very, efficient metabolic system is gone because if you have a very um, fast muscle wasting due to being hypermetabolic or very high information phase in the ICU, then you have an instant kind of a, uh, I say inter-organ crosstalk, we can even say an inter-organ, uh, they shout to each other. And after the shouting, because there is so much secretion, after the shouting will be silent. There will be no inter-organ crosstalk anymore. So that's the reason why we are seeing that the amount of muscle wasting you have is also correlated to cognitive function. It's also correlated to mitochondrial function of the kidney. So AKI is also connected to muscle wasting itself. So if you want to make sure that your muscle quality, not only looking at the muscle mass, but really looking at the muscle quality itself. So your mitochondrial biogenesis. So how really efficient is your muscle even during your resting phase in the ICU being sedated and being in the under vent? That's essential for your, for your outcome. Uh, and of course, looking at the system itself, looking at the body, that the muscle of the leg, of course, the, the, by far the biggest ones. So those will be the ones you can train easily. But there are other stuff. Um, also, I think one of the muscles we tend to forget is the diaphragm. It's an is a skeletal muscle which has fast and slow twitch fibers. That means that it is a kind of a weird muscle that can um, be, has a function being non-fatigued for 50%. So there's 50% non-fatigued fibers and 50% fatiguing fibers. So it can have a huge amount of power, but very briefly, but also can lose amount of endurance, but with a very slow power. So if we then look at ventilation, looking at mechanical ventilation, that's completely all physiology, because your diaphragm will be used completely different than ever. And if you have muscle wasting on your diaphragm itself, it's also a specific kind of wasting which shows instantly, what we're seeing already four hours after intubation that your muscle of a diaphragm is already remodeling. So if you're able already to, able, because we know that that's kind of weird if you're just looking at the internal of yourself, the diaphragm, the diaphragm is, is, is connected to the upper 
uh, your appetite, directed femoris, your iliac psoas muscle. So all muscles are kind of connected with, um, um, with fascia, with connective tissue. So everything is, is one specific kind of system which works very well. And you have to understand from a biomechanical point of view that the muscle of the leg is important also for your diaphragmatic function. So there's a lot of stuff which we just don't understand. I think when you're, when you're talking with an RT or when you're talking with a perfusionist, they have their specific core is ventilation or perfusion that way. They have no clue, for instance, that when you're um, laying a patient on the side and making a more extension of the hip, that the diaphragm on that side will change a little bit in the length and potentially have a better length power curve so the patient will be able to breathe easier. Just biomechanics. It's not perfusion, it's not gas, it's right. just biomechanics, yeah. And, and sometimes when patients, when you get them up to the chair, they'll say, they'll write on the board and say, oh, I can breathe so much better. Yeah, yeah, it's just biomechanics. And then this, exactly, and also what we're seeing is just looking at architecture of a muscle. One of the things I always see in the first days, and I think that's hard for also for nurses to, to be very clear about, is that you have to make sure that the architecture of the muscle is preserved. So if you have a leg that's very exorotated or enervated, that instantly changes the architecture of the leg because the, um, the gravity still pulls the muscle down. So your femur, your femur bone will be kind of a glide. They will be gliding off on the medial side or the lateral side. So if your muscle changes from this position in the, from the joint, and even if it just stays the same size, but it just changes his position from the joint, your brain does not know anymore where that specific muscle was. So your motor programs in your brain will not work anymore. So if you want to stand up, you cannot stand up anymore because the muscle has different kind of properties right now. Its length and its position in the leg is different and the brain does not know that anymore. How long does that take to happen? Is this after days, uh, after weeks? Yeah, yeah, and I think it will be happening, I think already within 24 hours or so. Because we're seeing right now if you're being sedated and your, uh, your, resting, your, your resting membrane potential of the muscle decreases, you see already kind of a, the atrophy is not based on the muscle size changes, but just based on your, your tone of the muscle decreases instantly. So you get a kind of a more flattened muscle. And if you get a more flattened muscle, then the muscle will be far more eager to slide off to the medial side or to lateral side. That's almost instant. Okay, that's, that's making so much more sense because um, in the awake and walk in ICU, we walk people shortly after intubation. Yeah. And in my mind, it was to preserve mass, right? So that they don't yeah. atrophy. But you're saying the sooner you preserve that connection. Motor learning is one of the first things you have to do because when you learn the brain to reconnect to the muscle again, that is the first and the fastest way of recovering. That, that brain, that kind of specific programming can be done easily, instantly. And it's kind of cool because if you're, and those, those brain, those kind of motor programs are crossing. So if you're, if you're only using one leg, for instance, if you do a kind of a standing up with one leg, then the brain part will also be changed for the other leg, for the other, other brain part. So it will be crossing. The programs will be matched in the left and the right. So you can even already train people, just training them feeling that program, making sure that if they train, that the brain feels that the proprioception of the, of the joint is there and that the brain knows right now you are in 90 degrees flexion of the knee and your muscle is over there. So you have to contract over this. So this those are our, all information that the brain needs to have to make sure that it's able to contract that muscle 
in that speed, in that place, in that time. And so we had a, an interview with a, a young guy here. I think he was like 30. He was a firefighter, extremely good shape, extremely right. good shape. Um, and he lost a lot of muscle mass, but by mass wise, he still should have been able to just get out of bed. Right. Um, and yet he struggled yeah. during that recovery. Um, so that makes more sense that all that communication had been severed or altered. And you can have even even what we're seeing already is that the um, your 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 vesicles that are your muscle fibers they have a specific angulation in the muscle, and if that angulation changes, so if there are if there is less tone, the angulation changes and it will be more horizontal. So then the torque which you can drift by your muscle normally when this is a a, a angulation of the muscle where you have this bone and here bone, now you change it over here more horizontal when you pull on the leg. It will not give you that force anymore. So your efficient way of uh, collecting power through that specific muscle fiber is gone. And that's instantly propofol is one of the biggest issues over here. Propofol mm -hmm. has that kind of this kind of instant effect on the muscle, apart okay. from being also very toxic for the mitochondria. But from a resting membrane potential of the leg, it will change, mainly lose, uh, only losing in the um, in the slow twitch fibers. Why does it do that? Why does propofol do that to the muscles uh, it has specific um on the sodium potassium channels it has this effect so what happens when you're and, and we, we've seen that mainly in a kind of a weird way in the intermediate muscle that's the muscle beneath rectus femoris muscle that's a very deep muscle normally you cannot see it and i think it's still one of the muscles most underestimated because this muscle you cannot biopsy because you have to go through the rectus femoris to biopsy it mm -hmm. so nobody will do that and in the world of muscular histology, it's kind of when you cannot biopsy it, it is not there. Mm -hmm. So we don't we don't talk about it. Uh -huh. And imaging, well, imaging is one of the things, and ultrasound is one of the things where you can easily look at a specific muscle. And even with muscle ultrasound, you can even see the angulation, and you can calculate the angulation of the muscle fiber. And we saw that the intermediate muscle is mainly a very slow twitch muscle. It's a muscle that's not a primary driver, but it's a muscle that tends to increase your tension inside the overall muscle itself, where you need to have movement. It can be easily instant movement based on your active femoris muscle. So that there is an instant tone over there. And if that tone decreases, then we're seeing already, and that was only in the active femoris and intermediate muscle, then we see that the uh, the change of the dive, the exchange of the fasciculation is more horizontal and you get a more flattened muscle. And now maybe I can. You think you can agree also from the outside. Everyone in the end ends up being a pancake on the ICU. Because well, muscles will be a pancake. Outside of the awake and walking ICU. Exactly. That's what we want to move. Yeah. If you're not walking, when you're not mobilizing, then you literally get a pancake. Also looking at the, you're looking at the top of the muscle. You can see muscle on the left, on the medial side, and muscle on the lateral side, and you can see the bone in the middle. Yeah. And then that's purely based on that there is still muscle, but this is all being kind of waste away, but also being forced because of gravity to one side or the other side. No matter how you position a patient in bed. And so propofol disrupts mitochondrial function and, and, and sodium membrane, channels. Mem channels. Yeah, membrane potential changes. Yeah. If you've been listening to this podcast, you're likely convinced that sedation and mobility practices in the ICU need to change. The ICU community is facing incredible difficulty with the trauma from the pandemic, staffing crisis, and burnout. We cannot afford to continue practices that result in poor patient outcomes 
more time in the ICU, higher healthcare costs, and greater workload for the ICU team. Yet the prospect of changing decades of beliefs, practices, and culture across all disciplines of the ICU is a daunting task. How does this transformation start? It can begin with a consultation with me to discuss your team's current practices, barriers, and to formulate a plan to help your ICU become an awake and walking ICU. I help teams master the ABCDEF bundle through education, consulting, simulation training, and bedside support. Let's work together to move your team into the future of evidence-based ICU care. Click the link in the show notes of this episode to find out more. So we love propofol. I say we as in the ICU community because it's short acting, quote unquote, which I completely dispute depending on patient body habitus Um, and it's deliriatus, but I didn't appreciate how much it affects the muscles. And we just, we as in the ICU community, community just crank it up and think it's totally benign because we're unaware of what it's really doing. And I focus on the brain, what it does to the brain, the delirium. Yeah. But you're saying that it is toxic for the muscles. Toxic for the muscles, toxic for the mitochondria wow. also. So yeah, yeah, yeah no, definitely. And, and I think we still need to find out. And I think one of the questions we have, and also the question we have in, in our research group is, we see potential are our patients are more susceptible to this kind of toxic effects of propofol and some are not. So there is a kind of a responsiveness or an unresponsiveness to the toxicity of, of, of propofol. Uh, the hardest part is right now how to find out and mainly can we non-invasively find out because uh, the only way to do it very well from a muscle point of view is doing a muscle biopsy, but that's always kind of hard to do. Uh, we're still looking into uh, potential other imaging uh, modalities which we can use, but uh, what we're seeing right now, the specific that we saw in our COVID, COVID of course is very specific population mm-hmm. uh, we saw very and where we have a very high propofol usage in that population also yeah it's a very specific neurologic changes and also again in the intermediate muscle and we saw mainly fasciculations so those are fasciculations are kind of lower motor neuron disorders um, which i saw only in the very sub cohort of my all COVID population so imagine if you have a almost a kind of a neurologic disorder, which we don't know if it's based on COVID alone or COVID and on top of propofol, and then being also being being uh, prone for having that specific phenotype on and that responsiveness of, of, uh, of propofol. And paralyzed. This, and paralyzed, yeah. Yeah. The potential we're seeing is, again, again, it's one of the stuff we're still uh, going to is right now on a peer review, but uh, that could potentially be the explanation why people have so much issues afterwards. Because if there is cognitive dysfunction, but also overall fatigue, and you have a lower motor neuron disease behind it, that can be an explanation of the, the long haulers or the long COVID that we're seeing right now. And I only saw the very niche COVID populations being intubated. And that's very well, well defined because we do a lot of stuff with them. Imagine just people on the floor or the very, very sick at home, right. which we just don't know about. So there's a lot of stuff there. Yeah, we still need to find out. And along the same lines, you mentioned a hypermetabolic state during critical illness. Yes. Can you tell us more about what happens yeah. when someone's incredibly inflamed or what contributes to the metabolic state as well as Good other question, things question. That contribute to metabolic yeah. loss. Uh, we, we published an article, uh, uh, John Whittle uh, 
uh, and I and, and the whole Paul Wismayer Leap Covert team, um, that we saw a very specific kind of phenotype in the COVID patients where we measuring metabolic or uh, metabolic rate driven by uh, in that kilometer. So we put a metabolic card on the patient and we're measuring VO2, VCO2 and ventilation. Then we can calculate the amount of calories they're burning on that specific time frame. So you can calculate over 24 hours. So you have a kind of a insight in how much kilocalories they're burning day by day. And you have kind of normal reference values based on your length and your weight. Um, normally, you have a very information phase. When you are on an RDS patient, for instance, you have a very defined information phase in the first week or so. Again, in the first acute phase, you have the, um, 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 in, in the acute complete phase itself, you have a early and a late onset kind of a phase. So you have a hypermetabolic and kind of a leaving off, and then you're going back again to kind of a more normal metabolic, or maybe even a hypometabolic phase. Uh, in COVID, it was completely different. We saw a normal metabolic phase in the first week and the second and the third and the fourth week, based on your BMI, we saw a very hypermetabolic phase. Hypermetabolic means you are above your 100% predicted value. So, and maybe we have to get a little bit in depth of physiology, but it's because RE is based on your VO2, so your oxygen consumption of that specific time. And if VO2 is being calculated, you can, of course, measure it through the mouth, which we do. We can also calculate it based on your, um, your cardiac output, your stroke volume and your heart rate, and your arterial, arterial venous oxygen difference. So your oxygen consumption from the peripheral tissue, tissue like your gut, like your brain, like your heart. The thing is what we just don't know, and that's also one of the articles that's coming up right now, is that can we somehow see that people who were hurting, we, I, I saw, for instance, patients being sedated, being prone, still had a cardiac index of 9.1. So from a cardiac point of view, and they had um, VO2s around five, 600 mils a minute. So that's specifically very high. Mm -hmm. Not high where you normally have to be when you're running, but from a cardiac point of view, he had a stock volume of around 25 liters or so, of and the cardiac output for 25 liters or so. That's when you're running. That Those are cardiac outputs that stay when you're running. But he's still laying down prone, being sedated. So there is something going on over there, being hypermetabolic. So the, the heart itself has a huge strain and somehow tries to compensate for the lower perfusion or the lower um, uh, extraction of oxygen in the peripheral tissue. The only way for the for the system to do that, if you have low extraction of, of, of oxygen, is higher flow. Just make sure that you have a higher flow in the system. And if you have a percentage of extraction, just make the flow bigger. So the percentage of extraction is higher. So you get more extraction and, and essentially more perfusion in your, in your peripheral tissue. So that's what the hypermetabolic phase kind of invokes is that it is a higher VO2 consumption. What we don't know is where does it come from? Because when we do an exercise test and measuring VO2, we know for sure there's mainly muscle because we're driving muscle because there is some specific stress going on. Right now, a patient is lying down, being sedated, and is being prone. So is it more mitochondrial function? We're measuring all over systemic mitochondrial function. You're measuring respiration of the mitochondria. You don't know which mitochondria. You don't know if it's the brain, or it's more the gut, or it's more the heart, or it's more specific to the muscle. So... Um, the information itself can come over all over. So immune response is very defined, very high. And in RDS is more in the first week and then in, in the COVID we saw more in the second and the third week. 
and that's very happy metabolic phase is defined of course you have a more need of your caloric needs so there's kind of also discussion what do you should you do should you also give more calories and how will you define the calories itself based on micronutrients so looking at more lipids or looking at more carbs mm. and then the whole question again that's the kind of the circle we're in right now is i'm always talking about systemic metabolic mitochondrial dysfunction. And one of the things we're seeing right now in patients, they have uh, also amazing, mainly from a muscle point of view, an inability to utilize fats. So your switch from fats to carbohydrates and fats again, that's impaired right now. So if you have a system that can only utilize carbohydrates in the system right now. That's what you need to give. They need to give, but then you have another issue. You are insulin resistant. Mm. So you can utilize carbohydrates from it all. So we push back to lipids, which you cannot do. So then you have an overall metabolic dysfunction, which can, cannot utilize any substrates, but there is a demand because there is inflammation. So the tissue needs the ability to, to extra oxygen. So there's a lot of stuff. How do you define that specific? Can you, can you somehow um, kind of hack, kind of tweak the system in this way? And one of the things we're looking into um, those people can if you if you give them carbohydrates, they cannot utilize carbohydrates. If you give them lipids, they cannot utilize lipids anymore. So if you do, for instance, propofol is also kind of a weird way because there's a lot of lipids in there. So if you give them a high lipid um, load, the only way what, what happens then, they accumulate lipids inside the muscle or inside the organ. And it itself gives rise to insulin resistance. So the propofol so contributes to insulin resistance. In the end, when you're not able, when you yeah, when you have an, acu an, an accumulation of fats because you're in unable to utilize that fat space of propofol, you accumulate in the muscle, then you have muscle insulin resistance, which is kind of weird. We are already kind of building insulin resistance with our own stuff, and what we're doing, we give them insulin. So we have a kind of a weird kind of a circle over here. So that's a third way in which propofol is not helpful to muscles. I, had, nope. I didn't know that. Wow. So, and there is, there is potential way, and it's kind of a way also coming, coming back from the athlete world, is when you have a patient, and again, uh, you can argue potentially, which we don't know yet, but you can argue if that the people vulnerable for that kind of infection of COVID being intubated were potentially already being prone, having a poor or even maybe impaired systemic mitochondrial function. Because if you cannot utilize and you have your immune response and the immune cells itself has mitochondria. So your mitochondria function itself also drives your immune function. If you have an inability to utilize substrates, then you're kind of in the middle because your oxygen is needed, but you cannot give it because you cannot utilize any substrates. To bypass that system is using uh, ketonesters. So if you use ketonesters, you bypass the cycle and you can give instant kind of, you, but you're making people instantly going into a ketos, mm -hmm. in the keto state, which normally only can be done when you're having a ketogenic diet, which also is one of the potential um, ways of doing is that you're uh, lowering carbohydrates, even for chip feeding and going and kind of pushing them to a ketogenic or going to eat if going to ketos. But again, you only can go to with ketos when you have the ability to utilize fats, which they cannot do. 
So you have a kind of a weird kind of in the middle, but when you're giving them oral ketones estrogen instantly, then that's kind of a, a, a substance that the brain and the gut and the, the kidney and mainly also the heart can use instantly. So you give literally the system, the substance they use without interfering with the impairment they have. So the mitochondria from your immune system can be used and you're hacking the mitochondria being used by using different kinds of stuff. Again, this is not a uh, standard of care yet. We are still looking into that specific usage because it's just ketones, it's, it's just a fooding supplement. It's right. not very, it's, it's no medication. It's not, it's kind of a vitamin D or whatever. Uh, so we're looking at the utilization of that specific intervention in, in, in the first week, because we show hyper and hyper and hypometabolic states in people. The question only is, is it hypermetabolic or hypometabolic based on just their, uh, just in the kind of a um, lower state or you're just not able to use oxygen. And if they're able to use oxygen itself, then we have to help them. And, that, and, and, and in a way, looking at multi-organ failure is kind of a way of, and this I think makes sense, it's kind of a way of struggling from the body to get in a kind of a hibernation phase. Because if you want to make sure that the, the, um, the most important organs is the system, like your heart and like your, um, like your brain mm -hmm. preserve, and you already have a low mitochondrial function, just shut down the systems that have poor mitochondrial function. And that's the reason why you get API. That's the reason you get gut stuff. So when muscles break down, they atrophy, due yeah. to all the factors we've discussed, it expedites the immune response, right? So you get yeah. even in a hyperinflammatory state. So COVID's already inflammatory disease. So when we sedate people, leave them in bed and don't nurse them properly, we expedite or we aggravate this inflammatory process that's already going on. Exactly. Yeah. And that I did yeah. not know. And so yeah. I mean, I mean, there's no way to really know, but some patients develop um, renal failure. Some people, some don't. Um, and it seems to be almost random or spontaneous with COVID. But could it be aggravated by this mitochondrial dysfunction that we've created? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe some. I think. I think somebody is already pro. And and in the in the whole uh, from uh, admission, sometimes we push patients to a uh, to a level that, that the system cannot cope with anymore. And it just shuts down. And what I try to find out is, can we somehow dissect? Can we somehow predict the specific phenotype? That I know if you push this guy this way, this will be his reaction. This one is very prone to having an AKI because of this, 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 and this, and this. Mm -hmm. So we have to find out more. And that will be, of course, a, um, not a very easy task, but I think it, it shows that we have to be far more, um, you're looking at the uniqueness of the system itself and we have to assess on a day-by-day -day base. That of course takes time and takes effort. And um, uh, what I always try to advocate is we have to have a kind of a, I call it a kind of a task force, a mobilization, nutrition, respiration kind of a task force where the RT, the nutritionist, the nurse practitioner, uh, the PA, everyone is somehow involved in having a specific kind of discussion 
in how to pursue early, early mobilization, combination with potential changes in uh, ventilation stuff or changes in medication and all, with the foremost first focus is we have to make sure that our focus and our goal upon admission is the quality of life of the patient after their discharge in ICU. And yes. I think if you work in the ICU, you tend to be only looking at, well, we, we, we did it, he is discharged from the ICU, but that is just the beginning of that specific life or non-life. So going back to what always Paul says is we have to create survivors, not victims. I think we tend to not look at the outcome. Again, if you have output, we are fine. The ECMO did well. Right. But sometimes you have to see patients after ECMO and see what kind of scars they have in the neck. And that's something we discuss a lot that's uh, really unfortunate about our system here in the United States is that as soon as someone's traped and their vent settings are down enough, then they can be sent to LTAC. And so the critical care world does not have to address it. And I don't think people realize how long it takes and the mortality rates after the ICU that could have been prevented by what we do in the ICU. And even just what you've explained and told me reaffirms but and changes my perspective of when someone initially is admitted to the ICU as far as how quickly we start nutrition what kind of nutrition we do I'm so sorry to all the nutritionists I should have done an episode because apparently you guys have a lot to teach us absolutely no 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 I think they are essential same essential as the RT and and, and PTR but they have to work together yeah. You have to somehow work, you know, in a way that you can. And again, I think it's it's kind of a weird way to push it, but I think um, when people have people are being admitted to the ICU, that is their Olympic Games. They want to reach their gold medal. So we are their team. We have we are the performance coaches. We are the nutritionists. Mm-hmm. We are they're all there, surrounding it, and they want we want to make sure they get their golden medal. And that has to be their that's be our goal instead of just going with the flow somehow. And that's not kind of a weird way to say, but I think we need to be far more uh, focused on life after ICU instead of the ICU itself. I could not agree more. I know trainer is going to say, just kick your feet up for the next couple of weeks and then uh, then we'll go hit a race. Yeah. That's yeah. not training and that's not... That's not how it goes. No, 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 And no, that's no, not how you no. create survivors. That's not how you create... That's how you create victims, as you say. Create victims. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Because what we're seeing right now, we know that the mortality rate in ICU has has dropped significantly the last 10 years or so. But uh, most people are dying at home Mm -hmm. seven, eight, eight months after admission. So what was that all for? Yeah. Besides prolonging suffering. And how much would that change if the moment someone rolled in, we said, this is a human, this is a person, this is their this is what they do for work. This is what they need their body for and appreciated the muscular system as much as we do the kidneys and the heart and the lungs um, and implemented all this research that you're doing into actual practice. Um, But I, I, I was unaware of a lot of these principles. I didn't realize how much muscle loss or wasting or atrophy contributes to multi-organ failure. Yeah. I had no idea. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm obsessed with this stuff and I didn't know. So how much that would that change our approach to all of everything we do? How much more would we hesitate and dread sedating people instead of running to the propofol if yeah. we knew that we were essentially kind of killing them with it? 
I think we're, we're kind of that's kind of the way is people are scared to change, mm-hmm. and 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 they know what they have right now, and they are afraid that something will will happen somehow. And yeah, I, and I think we just need to make sure we have a very dedicated team in, in knowing that you can have a. This is what we did also. Um, um, when you have complex cases, you have to you have to make sure your your interaction with your your your, your colleagues, your healthcare professionals. And talking about everyone has a specific knowledge base and and we need to know far more from each other i think to have a better understanding which is important for this specific patient and right now i think the knowledge base is not being shared there are a lot of knowledge bases but not shared ones and we have yeah. just standardized practices that really impede us from doing personalized optimized care for our patients exactly um, yeah and so we just have to cut the cord and actually hear from people like you that provide such a different perspective and insight. And I'm excited for the episodes coming up. Oh, definitely. Yep. Yeah. We we'll have so much more to talk. Okay. To talk about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And if the listeners have any questions um, for Hieron, uh, we can uh, talk about it on Instagram and we'll address the next episode. Thanks so much. Awesome. All right. Bye-bye. If you want to join in on the conversation, Leave a voicemail at 801-784-0472 or reach out to me on Twitter. Schedule a consultation for your ICU, as well as find supportive resources such as the free ebook, case studies, episode citations, and transcripts. Please check out the website www.daytoniceuconsulting.com.